0: Hello, friends. This is Lisa DeLay for the Spark My Muse podcast, and this is Soul School Lesson 164, What You Can't Say. I am so delighted to be with you today. I'm so full of joy and happiness. I am announcing the pre-order availability of my book, published with Broadleaf Books. It is now available on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and broadleafbooks.com. I hope you will really help me spread the word about this. I've been looking forward to writing this book and getting it out there for 10 years. If you want to follow along more closely, go to patreon.com forward slash sparkmymuse. All next week, August 3rd, 2020, I will be doing my best to promote the pre-order availability of my book. Here's a few endorsements that have come in so far. From John M. Sweeney, the author of Nicholas Black Elk, Medicine Man, Catechist, Saint, and the co-author of Meister Eckhart's Book of the Heart, many other books, and one of the editors at Paraclete Press, John says, The climatological and geological metaphors in this book were powerful to me. Chasms, fire, still water, wildness, all plunged me more deeply in confronting myself and God in those places I don't often confront or talk about. I was blessed by the dangerous adventure of the wild land within." Here's another comment by Dr. Fu Lu, theologian, philosopher, and author of Jesus of the East, Reclaiming the Gospel for the Wounded. Lisa Colon DeLay is your companion and guide through the landscape of the interior. It is a wonderful journey that brings us not only closer to ourselves, but also helps us engage with our world and communities. Each place is filled with mystery and insight as she explores various ways in which black indigenous people of color, as well as desert fathers have perceived the divine and leads us to grasp the world, not only beyond, but the world more fully around and within. In this world, Cologne delay asks us to traverse and to marvel, to adventure and make our homes. During these times of uncertainty, hardships, and even trauma, the Wildland Within provides a roadmap for navigating the aching of the heart and soul, the yearnings of the mind and body. And I'm also really excited to tell you that Parker J. Palmer, one of the inspirations and one of the people that I mention in the book, A Good Bit, has agreed to read and endorse the book. So I'm really ecstatic to be at this point to share the book with you, to get it out for pre-order and, and I ask you to share the news and please pre-order it while you can in these months ahead of the release in April. In late March and April of 2021, I will be doing six live lessons and book club type interactions on Facebook Live. These will be every Wednesday in the last two weeks of March and all of April. To talk about the book, be able to discuss it with everybody, with all the readers who want to discuss it, and to go over some real specifics that are important in the book, some of the most important lessons. It'll be a great time to reach out and connect with readers and anyone who has any questions and also dig a little deeper into some of the material, some of the things like core wounds that we have that we don't realize we have. Some of the things like trauma and pain that come into our lives and stymie our spiritual growth. And some of the things like hidden influencers and marginalized voices that have been sidelined and unheard that keep the fullness of the gospel from reaching us in the most powerful ways possible. So that's all I have to say about that for now. More information will be available in the coming weeks. Thank you so much for being part of this journey with me. It really feels like time to celebrate. The thing I'm going to share with you today is by someone named Paul Graham, a programmer, a writer, an investor. He actually wrote this essay in 2004, which seems like quite a while ago. But I think it's a great idea to bring some of these ideas back now that we're living in a time where we have a narrowing of what is permissible to say and even to think. We have a cancel culture that is in overdrive, and we have names that we call people we don't like, we don't agree with, or we want to belittle, like Karen. Some of these names that have become ubiquitous with othering people. Sometimes they're taken as jokes, but I think they point to a deeper maliciousness and a deeper nastiness that has become part of a mainstreaming of ill will and a kind of spiritual malformation that I would love to see confronted and questioned. What happens when we force each other to conform to certain ways of being and ways of thinking as we start to have a group think and anyone who thinks outside that, anyone who doesn't conform becomes the heretic, the person that should be burned at the stake. And that puts us in a lot of danger in terms of living in a democracy, especially because a democracy presupposes that various voices from various backgrounds all matter and all count and should be taken into consideration. A majority rules, but many voices are important, not just the rich and powerful voices, not just, not just the elite who think that they know best for everyone else, and not just the most vocal or violent, but the fullness, of the humanity represented in the population. What Paul Graham writes about in What You Can't Say, written in January 2004, is a needed corrective we should bear in mind, I believe, in these new kinds of times. And I believe this is especially true of the religious communities, the Christian communities. We are very much into banging square pegs into round holes, whether they like it or not, forcing them to conform and ostracizing them when they don't. This is, of course, what happened to Jesus, nonconformist, peasant, uneducated, and was crucified as an insurrectionist, and of course, as a very problematic teacher for the ruling and religious class. So I think we should take into consideration the kind of ways we're behaving and the kind of attitudes we hold towards others. We should be curious about people not automatically condemning them. Other people have a right to have their own opinions and ideas. Doesn't mean they have a right to do anything they want in the world or to hurt others. We are turning into a bunch of thought police in general as a culture and even around the globe. This is especially true in totalitarian regimes like China and places like that where you're heavily monitored and dissenters are quelched immediately. But in a place that claims to be a democracy, we should not just allow other voices and other opinions, we should encourage them. I'm going to start with something in the middle of the piece called the conformist test. Let's start with a test. Do you have any opinions that you would be reluctant to express in front of a group of your peers? If the answer is no, you might want to stop and think about that. If everything you believe is something you're supposed to believe, Could that possibly be a coincidence? Odds are it isn't. Odds are you just think what you're told. You just think what you're told. So this is really most of us. And why is it that we just think what we're told? Why are we taught to just obey? In fact, we're not taught to really think critically or think on our own or come up with our own thoughts. We are taught to conform or be punished, conform or be ostracized and left alone, and be lonely, and miss out, or be actively punished or doxed. And it's very important for us as social mammals to make sure that the non-conformists suffer. So there's a lot of pressure for us as humans to conform. Even when we're thinking we're not conforming, we're basically conforming, and we're not the rebels we think we are. We are thinking what we're told to think. So I'm going to read this rather clever thought piece as a way to just inject some other thoughts and some curiosity into your mind frame in order that you might disrupt some of your typical conformist thoughts, my typical conformist thoughts. I think it's important that we allow new thoughts to come in. We don't have to accept and embrace all the new thoughts we hear. That's not the point but we have to assume that we are thinking what we are told to think. Is that wise? I think it's dangerous. So here we go. Have you ever seen an old photo of yourself and been embarrassed at the way you looked? Did we actually dress like that? We did, and we had no idea how silly we looked. It's the nature of fashion to be invisible in the same way the movement of the earth is invisible to all of us riding on it. What scares me is that there are moral fashions, too. They're just as arbitrary and just as invisible to most people, but they're much more dangerous. Fashion is mistaken for good design. Moral fashion is mistaken for good. Dressing oddly gets you laughed at. Violating moral fashions gets you fired, ostracized, imprisoned, or even killed. If you could travel back in a time machine, one thing would be true no matter where you went. You'd have to watch what you said. Opinions we consider harmless could have gotten you in big trouble. I've already said at least one thing that would have gotten me in big trouble in most of Europe in the 17th century, and did get Galileo in big trouble when he said it, that the Earth moves. It seems to be a constant throughout history. In every period, people believe things that were just ridiculous and believe them so strongly that you would have gotten in terrible trouble for saying otherwise. Is our time any different? To anyone who has read any amount of history, the answer is almost certainly no. It would be a remarkable coincidence if ours were the first era to get everything just right. It's tantalizing to think we believe things that people in the future will find ridiculous. What would someone coming back to visit us in a time machine have to be careful not to say? That's what I want to study here. But I want to do more than just shock everybody with the heresy du jour. I want to find general recipes for discovering what you can't say in any era. Now I'm skipping down from the part I already read. The other alternative would be that you independently considered every question and came up with the exact same answers now considered acceptable. That seems unlikely because you'd also have to make some mistakes. Map makers deliberately put slight mistakes in their maps so they can tell when someone copies them. If another map has the same mistake, that's very convincing evidence. Like every other era in history, Our moral map almost certainly contains a few mistakes, and anyone who makes the same mistakes probably didn't do it by accident. It would be like someone claiming they had independently decided in 1972 that bell-bottom jeans were a good idea. If you believe everything you're supposed to now, how can you be sure you wouldn't have also believed everything you were supposed to if you had grown up among the plantation owners of the pre-Civil War South, or in Germany, in the 1930s, or among the Mongols in 1200, for that matter. Odds are, you would have. Back in the era of terms like, quote, well-adjusted, unquote, the idea seemed to be that there was something wrong with you if you thought things you didn't dare say out loud. What can't we say? One way to find these ideas is simply to look at things people do say and get in trouble for. Of course, we're not just looking for things we can't say. We're looking for things we can't say that are true, or at least have enough chance of being true that the question should remain open. But many of the things people get in trouble for saying probably do not make it over the second lower threshold. No one gets in trouble for saying that two plus two is five or that people in Pittsburgh are 10 feet tall. Such obvious false statements might be treated as jokes, or at worst, as evidence of insanity, but they are not likely to make anyone mad. The statements that make people mad are the ones they worry might be believed. I suspect the statements that make people maddest are those they worry might be true. If Galileo had said that people in Padua were 10 feet tall, he would have been regarded as a harmless eccentric. Saying that the earth orbited the sun was another matter. The church knew this would set people thinking. Certainly, as we look back on the past, this rule of thumb works well. A lot of statements people got in trouble for seem harmless now. So it's likely that visitors from the future would agree with at least some of the statements that get people in trouble today. Do we have no Galileos? Not likely. To find them, Keep track of opinions that kept people in trouble and start asking, could this be true? Okay, it may be heretical or whatever modern equivalent, but might it also be true? This won't get us all the answers, though. What if no one happens to have gotten in trouble for a particular idea yet? What if some idea would be so radioactively controversial that no one would dare express it in public? How can we find these too? Another approach is to follow the word heresy. In every period of history, there seem to have been labels that got applied to statements to shoot them down before anyone had a chance to ask if they were true or not. Blasphemy, sacrilege, and heresy were such labels for a good part of Western history. And in more recent times, indecent, improper, un-American have been. But now these labels have lost their sting. They always do. By now, they're mostly used ironically, but in their time, they had real force. The word defeatist, for example, has no particular political connotations to it now. But in Germany in 1917, it was a weapon used by Ludendorff in a purge of those who favored a negotiated peace. At the start of World War II, it was used extensively by Churchill and his supporters to silence their opponents. In 1940, any argument against Churchill's aggressive policy was, quote, defeatist, unquote. Was it right or wrong? Ideally, no one got far enough to ask that. We have such labels today, of course, quite a lot of them, from the all-purpose inappropriate to the dreaded divisive. In any period, it should be easy to figure out what such labels are simply by looking at what people call ideas they disagree with, besides untrue. When a politician says his opponent is mistaken, that's a straightforward criticism. But when he attacks a statement as divisive or racially insensitive, instead of arguing that it's false, we should start paying attention. So another way to figure out which of our taboos future generations will laugh at is to start with labels. Take a label sexist, for example, and try to think of some ideas that would be called that. Then for each, ask, might this be true? Just start listing ideas at random. Yes, because they won't really be random. These ideas that come to the mind will be the most plausible ones. They'll be the things you already noticed but didn't let yourself think. In 1989, some clever researchers tracked the eye movements of radiologists as they scanned chest images for signs of lung cancer. They found that even when the radiologists missed cancer lesions, their eyes were usually paused at the sight of it. Part of their brain knew there was something there. It just didn't percolate all the way up into conscious knowledge. I think many interesting heretical thoughts are already mostly formed in our minds. If we turn off our self-censorship temporarily, those will be the first to emerge. If we look into the future, it would be obvious which of our taboos they'll laugh at. We can't do that, but we can do something almost as good we can look into the past. Another way to figure out what we're getting wrong is to look at what used to be acceptable is now unthinkable. Changes between the past and the present sometimes do represent progress. In a field like physics, if we disagree with past generations, it's because we're right and they're wrong. But this becomes rapidly less true As you move away from the certainty of the hard sciences, we may imagine that we are a great deal smarter and more virtuous than past generations. But the more history you read, the less likely this seems. People in the past were much like us. Not heroes, not barbarians. Whatever their ideas were, they were ideas reasonable people could believe. So here's another source of interesting heresies. You don't have to look into the past to find big differences. In our own time, different societies have wildly varying ideas of what's okay and what isn't. So you can try diffing other cultures' ideas against our own. The best way to do that is to visit them. Any idea of what's considered harmless in in a significant percentage of times and places, and yet is taboo in ours, is a candidate for something we're mistaken about. For example, at the high watermark of political correctness in the early 1990s, Harvard distributed to its faculty and staff a brochure saying, among other things, that it was inappropriate to compliment a colleague or student's clothes. No more nice shirt. I think this principle is rare among the world's cultures, past or present. There are probably more where it's considered especially polite to compliment someone's clothing and where it's considered improper. As are this, in a mild form, an example of one of the taboos a visitor from the future would have to be careful to avoid if he happened to set his time machine for Cambridge, Massachusetts in 1992, prigs. Of course, if they have time machines in the future, they'll probably have a separate reference manual just for Cambridge. This has always been a fussy place, a town of I-daughters and T-crossers, where you're liable to get both your grammar and your ideas corrected in the same conversation. And that suggests another way to find taboos. Look for prigs and see what's inside their heads. Kids' heads are repositories of all our taboos. It seems fitting to us that kids' ideas should be bright and clean. The picture we give them of the world is not merely simplified to suit their developing minds, but all sanitized as well to suit our ideas of what kids ought to think. You see this on a small scale in the matter of dirty words. A lot of my friends are starting to have children right now. They're all trying not to use bad words within a baby's hearing, lest the baby start using these words too. But these words are part of the language and the adults use them all the time. So parents are giving their kids an inaccurate idea of language by not using them. Why do they do this? Because they don't think it's fitting for kids to use the whole language. We like children to seem innocent. Most adults likewise, deliberately give kids a misleading view of the world. One of the most obvious examples is Santa Claus. We think it's cute for little kids to believe in Santa Claus. I myself think it's cute for little kids to believe in Santa Claus. But one wonders, do we tell them this stuff for their sake or for ours? I'm not arguing for or against this idea. It's probably inevitable that parents should want to dress up their kids' minds in cute little baby outfits. I'll probably do it myself. The important thing for our purposes, is that as a result, a well-brought-up teenage kid's brain is more or less a complete collection of all our taboos in mint condition because they are untainted by experience. Whatever we think that will later turn out to be ridiculous is almost certainly inside that head. Boy, I'm going to just stop for a second reading this article and say, Paul Graham is sorely mistaken because he wrote this prior to the smartphone and a whole world has opened up to very young children with the advent of the smartphone and not too many kids are so insulated as he as he thinks this would have to be edited and updated <laughs> for that <laughs> i'll go on i can think of one more way to figure out what we can't say to look at how taboos are created how do moral fashions arise and why are they adopted? If we can understand this mechanism, we may be able to see it at work in our own time. Moral fashions don't seem to be created the way ordinary fashions are. Ordinary fashions seem to arise by accident when everybody imitates the whim of some influential person. The fashion for a broad-toed shoe in the late 15th century Europe began because Charles VIII of France had six toes on one foot. The fashion for the name Gary began when the actor Frank Cooper adopted the name of a tough mill town in Indiana, Gary Cooper. Moral fashions more often seem to be created deliberately. When there is something we can't say, it's often because some group doesn't want us to. The prohibition will be strongest when the group is nervous. The irony of Galileo's situation was that he got in trouble for repeating Copernicus's idea. Copernicus himself didn't, in fact Copernicus was a canon of a cathedral and dedicated his book to the pope. But by Galileo's time, the church was in the throes of the counter-reformation, which was much more worried about unorthodox ideas. To launch a taboo, a group has to be poised halfway between weakness and power. A confident group doesn't need taboos to protect it. It's not considered improper to make disparaging remarks about Americans or the English and yet a group has to be powerful enough to enforce a taboo i suspect the biggest source i suspect the biggest source of moral taboos will turn out to be power struggles in which one side barely has the upper hand and that's where you'll find a group powerful enough to enforce taboos but weak enough to need them most struggles whatever they're really about will be cast as struggles between competing ideas. The English Reformation was, at bottom, a struggle for wealth and power, but it ended up being cast as a struggle to preserve the souls of the Englishmen from the corrupting influence of Rome. It's easier to get people to fight for an idea, and whichever side wins, their ideas will also be considered to have triumphed, as if God wanted to signal his agreement by selecting that side as the victor. We often like to think of World War II as a triumph of freedom over totalitarianism. We conveniently forget that the Soviet Union was also one of the winners. I'm not saying that the struggles are never about ideas, just that they will always be made to seem about ideas, whether they are or not. And just as there is nothing so unfashionable as the last discarded fashion, there is nothing so wrong as the principles of the most recently defeated opponent. Although moral fashions tend to arise from different sources than fashions in clothing, the mechanism of their adoption seems much the same. The early adopters will be driven by ambition, self-consciously cool people who want to distinguish themselves from the common herd. As the fashion becomes established, they'll be joined by a second much larger group driven by fear. The second group adopt the fashion not because they want to stand out, but because they're afraid but because they're afraid of standing out. Just an aside from this article right now, this is actually happening in real time now with, with the kneeling for the national anthem, which had started with, with Colin Kaepernick being the only one or one of just very few, and he was ostracized greatly for this. And and now you're having the opposite effect. Now if you don't kneel before the anthem or at the anthem you will definitely stand out. And there's probably fear on the other side of that. I don't know if you're listening to this in 2021 or some other later date, if people will be kneeling at the anthem, not kneeling, will they even play the anthem, who even knows? Because this is, this is very much a fluid idea, political idea. It means one thing at one time, and it means another thing at another time. And people adapt and adopt ideas based on what they mean at the time. Going back to the essay, So if you want to figure out what we can't say, look at the machinery of fashion and try to predict what it would make unsayable. What groups are powerful but nervous, and what ideas would they like to suppress? What ideas are tarnished by association when they ended up on the losing side of a recent struggle? If a self-consciously cool person wanted to differentiate himself from preceding fashions, like his parents' fashions, for instance. Which of their ideas would he tend to reject? What are conventional-minded people afraid of saying, this technique won't find us all the things we can't say? I can think of some things that aren't the result of any recent struggle. Many of our taboos are rooted deep in the past, but this approach, combined with the preceding four, will turn up a good number of unthinkable ideas. Why? Some would ask... Why would one want to do this? Why deliberately go poking around among some nasty, disreputable ideas? Why look under rocks? I do it first of all, for the same reason I did look under rocks as a kid, plain curiosity, I'm especially curious about anything that's forbidden. Let me see and decide for myself. Second, I do it because I don't like the idea of being mistaken. If, like other eras, we believe things that will later seem ridiculous, I want to know what they are so that I at least can avoid believing them. Third, I do it because it's good for the brain. To do good work, you need a brain that can go anywhere, and you especially need a brain that's in the habit of going where it's not supposed to. Great work tends to grow out of ideas that others have overlooked, and no idea is so overlooked as one that's unthinkable. In the sciences especially, it's a great advantage to be able to question assumptions. And the MO of scientists, or at least the good ones, is precisely that. Look for places where conventional wisdom is broken and then try to pry apart the cracks and see what's underneath. And that's where new theories come from. A good scientist, in other words, does not merely ignore conventional wisdom, but makes a special effort to break it. Scientists go looking for trouble. This should be the MO of any scholar, but scientists seem much more willing to look under rocks. I would pull back from this and say, sometimes scientists do this. Sometimes they need research grants in specific areas of interest that have the most money. And they go searching in those areas to confirm what they need to confirm because that's where the money is. (laughs) And so I think it's a little disingenuous to say that scientists don't follow the money when they have to pay the bills. But this is all really good information Paul has that can be applied to any field and discipline. And it's especially important to realize that we as groups will try to quash ideas we don't like or feel fearful of. And when our ideas are weak and our group is weak and we try to force differing ideas out of popularity and out of sight, it's because we are too afraid that our ideas aren't powerful enough. And then we have to maybe deconstruct what we believe, and that's too fearful of an idea to comprehend, so we will try to quash opposition. Whatever the reason, there seems to be a clear correlation between intelligence and willingness to consider shocking ideas. This isn't just because smart people actively work to find holes in conventional thinking. I think conventions also have less hold over them to start with. You can see that in the way they dress. It's not only in the scientists that heresy pays off. In any competitive field, you can win big by seeing things that others darent. And in every field, there are probably heresies few dare utter. Within the U.S. car industry, there's a lot of hand-wringing about declining market share. Yet the cause is so obvious that any observant outsider could explain it in a second. They make bad cars. And they have for so long that by now the U.S. car brands are anti-brands. Something you'd buy a car despite, not because of, cadillac stopped being the cadillac of cars in about 1970 and yet i suspect no one dares say this otherwise these companies would have tried to fix the problem training yourself to think unthinkable thoughts has advantages beyond the thoughts themselves it's like stretching when you stretch before running you put your body into positions much more extreme than any it will assume during the run. If you can think outside the box, that make people's hair stand on end, then you'll have no trouble with the small trips outside the box that people call innovative. As an interesting aside to this little thing about stretching, what they found with cyclists actually is that stretching is actually better for you after the ride than it is before. Before the ride, if you do a lot of stretching, it actually can increase injuries. And so this is where the conventional idea of stretching, in fact, is not a good idea at all. So it does help to look back at ideas that have become conventional, such as stretching before exercise, and see if that is still true in the domain in which you're participating. Going back to the article, when you find something you can't say, what do you do with it? My advice is don't say it, or at least... Pick your battles. Suppose in the future there is a movement to ban the color yellow. Proposals to paint anything yellow are denounced as yellowist, as is anyone suspected of liking the color. People like orange are tolerated but viewed with suspicion. Suppose you realize there is nothing wrong with yellow. If you go around saying this, you'll be denounced as a yellowist too, and you'll find yourself having a lot of arguments with anti yellowists. If your aim in life is to rehabilitate the color yellow, That may be what you want, but if you're mostly interested in other questions, being labeled as a yellowist will just be a distraction. Argue with idiots, and you become an idiot. The most important thing is to be able to think what you want, not to be able to say what you want. And if you feel you have to say everything you think, it might inhibit you from thinking improper thoughts. I think it's better to follow the opposite policy. Draw a sharp line between your thoughts and your speech. Inside your head, anything's allowed. Within my head, I make a point of encouraging the most outrageous thoughts I can imagine. But, as in a secret society, nothing that happens within the building should be told to outsiders. The first rule of Fight Club is, you don't talk about Fight Club. When Milton was going to visit Italy in the 1630s, Sir Henry Wooten, who had been the ambassador to Venice, told him his motto should be... Closed thoughts and an open face. Smile at everyone and don't tell them what you're thinking. This is wise advice. Milton was an argumentative fellow and the Inquisition was a bit resistive at the time. But I think the difference between Milton's situation and ours is only a matter of degree. Every era has its heresies. And if you don't get in prison for them, you will at least get in enough trouble that it's become a complete distraction. Okay, I'm going to pull back from this essay for a minute and say this is much more true now in 2020 than it was in 2004. People will have you doxed and people lose their jobs over the wrong kind of tweet and they can lose a lot, careers and, and everything. And so saying everything you think and typing everything you think is not advisable. There is a kind of thought police situation, and people take things the wrong way, and it's not always good to say everything that you think. You can do better by listening and empathizing than you can by stating your opinions all the time. I put it underscore this, highlight it, underscore, exclamation points. Uh, There's a lot of wisdom in, in listening. Wise advice. Back to the article. I admit it seems cowardly to keep quiet When I read about the harassment to which the Scientologists subject their critics or that pro-Israeli groups are compiling dossiers on those who speak out against Israel human rights abuses or about people being sued for violating the DMCA, part of me wants to say, all right, you bastards, bring it on. The problem is there are so many things you can't say if you said them. If you said them all, you'd have no time left for your real work. The trouble with keeping your thoughts secret though is that you lose the advantages of discussion. Talking about an idea leads to more ideas. So the optimal plan, if you can manage it, is to have a few trusted friends you can speak to openly. This is not just a way to develop ideas. It's also a good rule of thumb for choosing friends. The people you can say heretical things to without getting jumped on are also the most interesting to know. One of the best answers you can give in a time of zealotry is to say, I haven't decided. That's what Larry Summers did when a group tried to pull him into a certain position. He said, I don't do litmus tests, and a lot of questions people get hot about are actually quite complicated. There's no prize for getting the answer quickly. If the anti-yellowists seem to be getting out of hand and you want to fight back, there are ways to do it without getting yourself accused of being a yellowist. Like skirmishers in an ancient army, you want to avoid directly engaging the main body of the enemy's troops. Better to harass them with arrows from a distance. One way to do this is to ratchet the debate up one level of abstraction. If you argue against censorship in general, you can avoid being accused of whatever heresy is contained in the book or film that someone is trying to censor. You can attack labels with meta-labels, Labels that refer to the use of labels to prevent the discussion. The spread of the term political correctness meant the beginning of the end of political correctness because it enabled one to attack the phenomenon as a whole without being accused of any specific heresies it sought to suppress. Another way to counterattack is with metaphor. Arthur Miller undermined the House Un-American Activities Committee by writing a play, The Crucible, about the Salem Witch Trials. He never referred directly to the committee and so gave them no way to reply. And yet Miller's metaphor struck so well that to this day, the activities of the committee are often described as, quote, a witch hunt. Best of all, probably, is humor. Zealots, whatever their cause, invariably lack a sense of humor. They cannot reply in kind to jokes. They're as unhappy on the territory of humor as a mounted knight on a skating rink. Victorian prudishness, for example, seems to have seems to have been defeated mainly by treating it as a joke. Likewise, its reincarnation as political correctness, quote, I'm glad that I managed to write The Crucible, Arthur Miller wrote, but looking back I've often wished I had the temperament to do an absurd comedy, which is what the situation deserved, he said. A Dutch friend says I should use Holland as an example of a tolerant society. It's true that they have a long tradition of cooperative open-mindedness for centuries. The Low Countries were the place to go to say things you couldn't say anywhere else, and this helped to make the region a center of scholarship and industry, which have been closely tied together for longer than most people realize. Descartes, although claimed by the French, did much of his thinking in Holland. And yet, I wonder, the Dutch seem to live their lives up to their necks in rules and regulations. There's so much you can't do there. Is there really nothing you can't say? Certainly, the fact that they value open-mindedness is no guarantee. Who thinks they're not open-minded? Our hypothetical prim Miss from the suburbs thinks she's open-minded. Hasn't she been taught to be? Ask anyone and they'll say the same thing. They're pretty open-minded, though they draw the line at some things that are really wrong. Some tribes may avoid quote, wrong as judgmental and may instead use more neutral sounding euphemisms like negative or destructive. When people are bad at math, they know it because they get the wrong answers on the test. But when people are bad at open-mindedness, they don't know it. In fact, they tend to think the opposite. Remember, it's the nature of fashion to be invisible. It wouldn't work otherwise. Fashion doesn't seem like fashion to someone in the grip of it. It just seems like the right thing to do. It's only by looking from a distance that we see oscillations in people's ideas of the right thing to do and can identify them as fashions. Time gives us such distance for free. Indeed, the arrival of new fashions makes old fashions easy to see because they seem so ridiculous by contrast. From one end of the pendulum swing, the other end seems especially far away. To see fashion in your own time, though, requires conscious effort. Without time to give you the distance, you have to create distance for yourself. Instead of being part of the mob, stand as far away from it as you can and watch what it's doing, and pay especially close attention whenever an idea is being suppressed. Web filters for children and employees often ban sites containing pornography, violence, and hate speech. What counts as pornography and violence? And what exactly is, quote, hate speech? This sounds like a phrase out of 1984. Labels like that are probably the biggest external cue. If a statement is false, that's the worst thing you can say about it. You don't need to say that it's heretical. And if it is false, it shouldn't be suppressed. So when you see statements being attacked as Xist or Yic, substitute your current values of X and Y, Whether in 1630 or in 2030, that's a sure sign that something is wrong. When you hear such labels being used, ask why? Especially if you hear yourself using them. It's not just the mob. You need to learn to watch from a distance. You need to be able to watch your own thoughts from a distance. It's not a radical idea, by the way. It's the main difference between children and adults. When a child gets angry because he's tired, he doesn't know what's happening. An adult can distance herself enough from the situation to say, never mind, I'm just tired. I don't see why one couldn't, by similar process, learn to recognize and discount the effects of moral fashions. You have to take the extra step if you want to think clearly, but it's harder because now you're working against social customs instead of with them. Everyone encourages you to grow up to the point where you can discount your own bad moods. Few encourage you to continue to the point where you can discount society's bad moods. How can you see the wave when you're the water? Always be questioning. That's the only defense. What can't you say and why? There's some excellent points in there that I'm going to pull out and put in the show notes. And I think I'm going to print them out and let them be reminders to me on a continual basis to question the mob the mob that I'm a part of, or the mob that I see that gets out of control and has sort of social bad moods, we can get caught up in them and think about moral fashion as the good. But is it or is it something of the moment, something of our times? We're embroiled in things like political polarization, pandemics, unrest, and global and national uncertainty and anxiety. We're more likely now than at the time that this was written in 2004, when things seemed pretty darn calm by comparison, to fall into these thought traps. And I actually have a deeper concern for people of faith and people who call themselves Christians to go along with whatever the people of their church or church groups or people they're affiliated with religiously or in faith think because they don't want to stand out and be marginalized and be othered. There's a lot of fear there and the pressure to conform is very strong. It is that much more important that we have better ears to listen and better ways of knowing what are not the ways of society or of our church or ways that typically conform to the moral fashion du jour, but what are the ways that conform to those everlasting ways, the ways of the spirit? Talk about the fruit of the spirit in those nine ways. Those are the reference point for our lives, period. Those are the everlasting ways. It's always going to behoove us when our lives are based on values of goodness, kindness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. I'm forgetting the rest of them. (laughs) I hope that you keep this in mind. This is probably one of those episodes where you'll have to back it up, fast forward, and hone in on some different pieces because there's so much in that essay. You kind of have to pull things out of it. I will have to listen to this episode myself a few times to really let it sink in. I hope you can do that, too, because I really think our future decisions and our future moods, if you will, are incumbent on us really understanding this from a distance, understanding ourselves from a distance, understanding the mob, the society, what's happening in our world. This, this weird group think that we've been noticing and we're all are understanding that sources of media, were more suspicious of them, we're more suspicious of authority. And which authority do we trust? Probably none of them, <laughs> you know? So we're more cast in the waves, a more time of chaos or anarchy. But that doesn't mean that we should just follow a mob. It means we should think more critically. We wind up feeling like we're on the outside of a wheel that's spinning. But deep down at that hub of that wheel is at the core of us, is where God resides. And that's the still center, the hub. We don't have to be out on the chaotic rim go back to center, settle down in, in silence and stillness, and come back to center where things are still, where things remain. It could be part of the natural world where trees take a long time to grow, lifetimes, human lifetimes to grow. I leave you with this blessing that you go in peace, that you consider thinking about moral fashions, social fashions at a distance. And think about the things that we're told not to think or say and how that is part of this forced conformity that doesn't have to be part of our thinking and I think from there we can make better choices and decisions in our lives we can take our own steps forward with, without feeling the fears of what social pressure can bring I thank you for listening please share this with someone else today and preorder the wild land within. I know you're going to love it. It's going to bring a lot of value to your spiritual journey. And looking at the wild adventurous land within, with all its terrain, its chasms, its jungles, its fire bogs, its predators and prey. And I'll see you next week.